in Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Will Ferrell plays a race car driver who at one point in the movie gets in a crash and believes that he's on fire even though he isn't. He gets out of his car in his underwear and starts running around the track screaming, I'm on fire! I'm on fire! I don't want to die! Help me, Jesus! Help me, Jewish God! Help me, Allah! Ah! Help me, Tom Cruise! Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off me! Ah! Help me, Oprah Winfrey! You know, you know what uh, Ricky Bobby is doing right there? Ricky Bobby is hedging his bets. He thinks he's on fire and is going to die, so what does he do? He just throws out a prayer to all of them. That'll probably be good. Why believe in one when you can have them all? Now, this isn't just the faith, kind of the worldview of Ricky Bobby. This is the popular kind of renown. This is the worldview going in our society today. This kind of religious pluralism, right? It has been widely embraced by Western societies. This morning, this is where we're going. We are in a text that reveals the reason why Jesus came, why he was born, why he lived, why he came to do what he did. And it has everything to do with not relativism, but the truth. And as we go, we're going to spend some time interacting a bit with the religious pluralism of our day, okay? We're going to recognize that Jesus came to proclaim, to bear witness to the truth, but we're also going to interact with the fact that, that we live in a society that, that, that presses against the truth claims of Christianity. So what do we do? So we want to interact with that a bit, as I think we should, as you'll see in this text. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 18. I, I am so loving, I hope you are as well, that as we're approaching Easter in this season of Lent, we're approaching the cross in John's gospel and the resurrection as well. So we're working our way methodically towards the cross and the resurrection, and they are about to come. What's going on right now is that Jesus uh, had been, uh, before Caiaphas, the high priest in the Sanhedrin, which is essentially um, Israel's supreme court in this kangaroo tr- kangaroo court kind of scenario, a mock trial, and they are now pushing him on to Pilate because they want him executed. We pick it up in John chapter 18, verse 28, where it says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now, this is what's sometimes referred to as Johannine irony. There are key moments in John's gospel where he is trying to make it apparent to the reader. Do you not see how ironic this is? And this is one of those scenarios John wants us to see. They don't want to enter somewhere that would make them unclean. And because Pilate's palace is Gentile quarters, for them to enter into that area would make them unclean in their belief either for the day or in some cases for a week, depending on what the issue is, but they want to participate in the Passover happening right now. And and there's a week of festivities, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all these feasts going on in the midst of the Passover. It's a week's-long celebration. They don't want to miss out on any of that, and so they don't want to enter Pilate's court. Yet Jesus 
is the Passover in its fullest sense. So they're betraying the Passover, Jesus, but they're not entering the court so that they can participate in the Passover. It's so ironic. They want Jesus executed as a lawbreaker, but if they understood the circumstances correctly, they'd see that they're the lawbreakers. John wants us to see the great irony of the scene. Dea Carson put it this way, the Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. At the very time, they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who alone is the true Passover. When we talk about Passover, we're referring back to the Exodus when God frees his people, the Israelites, from bondage and captivity and he frees them and all of the firstborns are spared because they sacrificed a lamb and painted its blood on the doorpost and because of the blood of the lamb, their sins could be passed over. This is foreshadowing. This Passover they kept having every year to remember what God did there is only a shadow of the true Passover to come in Jesus, whose blood was shed so that our sins could be passed over. And yet here they are. No, no, we couldn't enter a Gentile court and be unclean. We want to participate in the Passover. Here you go. Here's the Passover lamb himself. Going on, verse 29, so Pilate went outside of them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Verse 32, John informs us, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So a little more background here, what's going on. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea, also known as the prefect of that area. And he was appointed by the Roman emperor Tiberius in AD 26, believed to be roughly four years before this incident happened. Pontius Pilate is a historical figure. Evidence has been found to that account. And he held this post until AD 37. Now, what's being said in these verses here is the Jewish leaders, they executed by stoning. But because there was Roman occupation, legally, one of the the, the bits of understanding at this time was that um, the Jewish council didn't have legal right to put someone to death. That was only the Romans could execute. Now, it's... We see in other places, such as the book of Acts, where there are people stoned to death, and even earlier in the Gospels, they tried to stone Jesus to death. And so what, what seems to be happening there is there were these times when the religious leaders could kind of work up an angry mob, and it's really hard to pin that on anybody. And so the angry mob stonings certainly happened at times, but legally, um, it was up to the Roman occupation to execute, and they did that by crucifixion. I think the Jewish leaders were quite excited about that because Jesus had so much sway with the crowds, with the people. So many people were believing in him that their thinking was, if he dies on a cross, our law, Deuteronomy 21, for example, talks about the, 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 the person who's cursed if they hang on a tree. And so they think that's the way to deal with Jesus. We'll have the Romans execute him. They'll nail him to a cross and everyone will have to see that man you were... Fo- following is a cursed man, and they'll turn from him. But John detects God's hand in all of this, though because death by crucifixion would also fulfill the words of Jesus. Jesus said this back in John chapter 12, I 
when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is just another steadying hand by John the gospel, showing God is the one in control, that Jesus is only going where he said he would go, to the cross to pay for our sins. Pick it up in verse 33 where it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Why? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now the Jews, their, their issue with Jesus is actually a theological one. They, they think him to be a blasphemer, that he actually talks about himself in terms which they perceive as him calling himself God, which he was. He was identifying himself that way, and that infuriated them. And so their issue with Jesus was truly theological. But that didn't really matter to Pilate. That kind of, have your little squabbles about theology. That's fine. I'm here to make sure that this area is run well. So what they do is they bring a charge against him that's not theological, it's political. And we can clearly see with the line of questioning that Pilate has is, are you a king? That the Jewish leaders have, have fed him the line that, look, he talks about the kingdom of God all the time, and he's coming as a king. I mean, Matthew's gospel is rich with that kind of, the, uh, the pictures of the kingdom of God and what it's like. And so they're saying he's a threat because he says he's a king. And this is what Pilate is interested in him. So they drum up charges that are political. And as Pilate questions him, Jesus admits as much that he is a king, but not the type of king that poses a threat to Roman rule. If it was, he would have brought fighting men, but he, he, he hasn't come that way. It's not that kind of, he's not that kind of king and it's not that kind of kingdom. Jesus says it's not a kingdom of this world. But Jesus did come as a king to reveal his kingdom. So it's this otherworldly kingdom, but it has very real, um, it, it matters here and now and makes a difference here and now as well. And so uh, Jesus talks in, about, about the kingdom of God with a number of parables. I'll give you a couple. He talks about the kingdom of God of which Jesus is the king, he talks about it like a hidden treasure in a field that someone founds or a pearl of great price they've been searching for and then they find it and they're so ecstatic about the treasure that they have found that they sell everything else because this is a more beautiful possession than anything else they could ever come across. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like that, far more valuable than anything else we could possess. And when you get it, when you come to see the kingdom of God as Jesus has brought it, it brings a lasting joy in God now and beyond this world. Jesus calls the kingdom of God like a mustard seed, the smallest seed that they knew of. 
but grows into this really large plant. Jesus illustrates the spreading of the gospel throughout the world as a mustard seed, just this really small, started small planting of a seed, and then it grows and grows and grows. Jesus is talking about the gospel and what the kingdom of God is like. It grows from planting the gospel in the hearts of people as it works its way all over the world. See, Jesus is the king of a radically different kingdom. There was no threat to Roman occupation. But Jesus came to do what he had come to do nonetheless, have a profound impact on lives now and for all eternity. Jesus said, this is why I came. This is why I was born, to bear witness to the truth. Pontius, Pontius Pilate responds, with the question, what is truth? And I think a good answer to Pilate's question, what is truth, is still needed in our day. It tells us in the text that, that Pilate doesn't really want to know. He says, what is truth? And then he immediately walks out. Like, it wasn't this open-ended, tell me more, Jesus. What is truth? And walked out the door. I mean, I've had a few conversations like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 what's truth? Try, let's just try to pin it down, come on. And as in conversation over. But I want to show you three ways that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, uh, as we can see in the text, and then we'll interact with that a bit as we go. First, Jesus came to bear witness to the inspired truth. In contrast to religious inclusivity or pluralism, truth isn't a feeling experience, but a fact decreed in eternity, demonstrated in history, and progressively revealed and recorded in Scripture. Isaiah 65, 16 tells us that God is the God of truth. So Jesus came to bear witness to inspired truth. God is true. He made the world. He's revealed himself through the scriptures and by other means, and he is truth. David Schrock wrote, all history, that doesn't even seem like a real last name, Schrock. All history proves this reality. What God promised, he fulfilled. What he foretold, he accomplished. His actions validated his words, and his words perfectly revealed his holiness, goodness, trustworthiness, and truth. And God has revealed himself in a book, the Bible, a true book, a trustworthy book. The theological word for what the Bible does is it, 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 that it, it speaks to its own validity. It's called self-attestation. It attests to its trustworthiness. All over the place, including Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum of your word is truth. And Jesus came to bear witness to the inspired book, uh, inspired truth. God has given us a book. That book is true. It reveals truth truthfully and reveals Jesus, the incarnate truth. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, second Jesus came as the incarnate truth. The written word of God isn't the only source of truth. Truth also manifested itself in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The very beginning of John's gospel, the gospel we're in, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and that's Jesus, because it goes on to say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then you jump to verse 14, and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, in the person of Jesus that's why it's no surprise that Jesus spoke differently than anybody ever. 
He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. Two incredible things about a statement like that. One, Abraham was like, what, 1,500 years earlier or so, and Jesus said, before he came around, I was, I existed. I'm pre-existent. I came before Abraham. But he doesn't just say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He's taking on the language of Exodus chapter 3 for the very name of God. So in that statement, he's saying, I've always been, and I am God in the flesh. Jesus is the truth incarnate. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He not only came speaking the truth, he is the truth. In other words, Jesus not only speaks about God, he is God incarnate. He embodies the truth about God. We don't know the truth rightly apart from Jesus Christ. This is a bold statement. This is the the exclusivity of the Christian faith. This is one of the most distasteful things to people outside of the church. They would look in and say, yeah, but you say you're the only way. And we just point to Jesus, we look to Jesus and say, Jesus said he's the way, he's the truth. And so what that says is we don't know truth rightly apart from Jesus because he is truth. A couple things about this scenario going on here. One, Jesus didn't come and die a horrific sacrificial death in order to be one of many paths. Just think about that for a minute with me. If the, if the religious pluralism of our day is correct and that all paths lead to God, all paths are equally valid, all faith streams are equally valid, why would Jesus leave his in, being enthroned in heaven, come to earth, be despised and rejected, even while living a, a spotless life, be crucified, just horrific death, if all paths lead, lead to God? He, he, he broke in because it was absolutely necessary because he is the truth. He is the way to God. Jesus didn't come and die a horrific sacrificial death in order to be one of many paths to God. And second, Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and Jesus can't all be right. Like Pilate is engaging with Jesus a bit but doesn't agree, isn't, isn't going down the same track. The Jewish leaders are rejecting Jesus. They think he's a blasphemer. They reject what he's teaching. They don't like it. And so all three of them are landing in different places. They can't all be true. They can't all be right. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17. He he preaches to a group of people in Athens. And the way he does it is he quotes their own philosophers in an engaging way to interact with their beliefs and then shine the gospel onto them. I just love that approach. He's using their own philosophers. He's speaking in in ways they understand, and then he's speaking the gospel into that context. So I'm going to humbly try to do that as well. I'm going to try and engage some of our philosophers. So Oprah Winfrey said... One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God, she says. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. This is a really popular notion, and so I just want us to engage with it a little bit. A Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian minister walked into a bar. And no, wait, that's not how it goes. Okay, wait. 
a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian minister who, who's Tim Keller, they, they sat on a panel together at a college in New York City talking about faith. So all three of them, the rabbi, the imam, and the minister, all three of them affirmed that there were significant irreconcilable differences between the major faiths. They were all happy to agree. They agreed on that. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, they all agreed that there were irreconcilable differences between the major faiths. And they agreed that if Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. That makes sense, right? Like they're all agreeing on this. The rabbi, the imam, and the minister are all agreeing. If Christians are right about Jesus, then others fail to worship God rightly if they don't acknowledge Jesus as God. But if Christians acknowledge Jesus as God and he isn't, then we are horrible blasphemers. Like Muslims and Jews are not going to be happy with us saying, yeah, right, Jesus, right? God. <laughs> that doesn't fly. So they all agreed that, that what you do with Jesus is really significant for all of their faiths. They couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God because their beliefs were incompatible. So we're going to start to talk a little bit about, well, then how do all paths lead to God? They're incompatible. So the rabbi, the, the, the I really wish I had a bar joke right now, but I don't. Uh, a rabbi, an imam, and a minister, they're saying this, they're agreeing on this. And a number of the students listening, I mean, you can imagine this, right? Objected and said to insist that one faith has a better grasp of the truth than others is intolerant. They were infuriated with what they, the, these men were concluding one student objected by contending that doctrinal differences between Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism were superficial and insignificant, that they all believed in the same God. But when Keller asked who that God was, he described him as an all-loving spirit in the universe. The problem with this position is its inconsistency. It insists that doctrine is unimportant, right? The differences are minute. We don't need to worry about the differences, right? Okay, well, what's God like? Well, he's this all-loving spirit, okay? But at the same time, while saying that doctrine is unimportant, at the same time, it, he's making the assumption that, doctr that, at time, that it's doctrinal beliefs about the nature of God that are at a loggerhead with those of all major faiths. He's actually making a doctrinal statement by saying the, the differences aren't all that insignificant, don't worry about doctrine. Meanwhile, he's spouting a new doctrine. Buddhism, so he's saying that God, well, what's God like then? What's God like? Well, he's an all-loving being. But the problem with that is Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God at all. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam believe in a God who holds people accountable for their beliefs and practices and whose attributes could not be all reduced to love. Ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing they forbid in others. 
You see the problem? Religious pluralism, which is the opposite or tries to be the opposite of exclusivism, proposes that multiple religions are true at the same time, even though they contradict each other. It's actually a far less plausible argument. Uh, I read recently uh, Mark Clark's book, The Problem of God. He was our speaker at our marriage retreat a couple years ago. No shortage of energy. I just really love and appreciate him. I was reading uh, a section in his book, The Problem of God, and he used two terms that I found really helpful. I want to share them with you. Cultural pluralism and metaphysical pluralism. Let me describe those for you. Cultural pluralism, he says, is acceptance and celebration of different cultures, peoples, races, and religions. And we need to stop and say at this point, that's great. Cultural pluralism is, is, is what we have in society where, it, where there, it, we're, we're a beautiful mosaic in Canada, where, where you can come from a different background with different views, you can land here and you can be respected. We can say you, you come from a different place and we can have this cultural pluralism that's actually a really beautiful thing. But he says what we do is we make the mistake of, of of thinking cultural pluralism is metaphysical pluralism. And what he means by that is taking it a step further and accepting as true all the ideas, convictions, and worldviews of those people and religions. So yes, cultural pluralism is right and good. I mean, we, we're told in the Scriptures, Romans 12, 18, if possible, Christian, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Be a good citizen. Be a good neighbor. Love people. Be engaging, be kind. Like, that's cultural pluralism. It's just, it's, it's welcoming, being kind and generous with everybody around us. But metaphysical pluralism, it's, it's actually not rooted in logic. It's emotional sentimentality. It doesn't work. It says, not only do I respect your right to hold your beliefs, I believe that they're true. Even if they all conflict with each other, they're just all true. So Clark goes on to say, it's, it's, it's a belief that we take on as a belief, though it's just an emotional sentiment so that we can sit together at Thanksgiving and not bicker or argue. Yeah, you're right. Oh, and you're right. I'm right. We're all right. We don't want to disagree because we think disagree is hating one another, but it's not. Cultural pluralism should exist and we should live peaceably among all people as best we can. Metaphysical pluralism, though, absolutely breaks down. All of these differing views cannot at the same time be true. It's in intellectually dishonest. Leslie Newbigin talked about it in terms of the elephant. Yeah, I think you've probably heard this, the, the blind men and the elephant. Leslie Newbigin was a missionary in India for three decades. And often when he would share the gospel with people, he would hear this same rebuttal, which was, hey, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing your faith, and that's great. But, but you need to understand that, that really it, it's like... It, all the major faiths are, are, are like blind men with an elephant. You know, one blind man walks up to the elephant and reaches out and he grabs onto the tail. And he says, oh, an elephant is like a snake. And another man walks up and he touches the leg of the elephant. And you're like, a snake? Like an elephant's like a tree. And another man walks up to the ear and it's all flimsy and thin and dry. It's like, like, a, like a tree or a snake. No, it's like paper. An elephant's like paper. And one walks up to the... Uh, the, what is it, where is it, the, the, the trunk and says, 
you're all wrong. It's a hose. And so what we need to understand, what, what, what Leslie Newbigin was being told, is you need to see that it's like all the faiths are just like blind men groping around trying to figure it out and maybe having a piece of the puzzle, but not everything. And that's what the, the, the dominant faiths in the world are. But Newbigin kind of breaks that down and says the story is consistent, constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions, to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is the exact opposite. The story is told by someone who can see and is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth of the world's religions are only groping after. It embodies the claim to know the full reality that claims that religions can't know. So the person saying, oh, you're all, all the religions, you're all just a bunch of blind men, Right, groping about trying to have a different little piece of the elephant. But what's being said is a person who claims to have the all-knowing view that's stepping outside of all the major faiths in the world and looking and saying, oh, they're all just blind, just getting a piece of it. But, but the person that's doing that is taking the all-knowing all and actually um, the arrogant perspective. You don't see it right. So don't claim to. I see it right. And I can tell you not to put a claim on exclusivism. See how it works? Really, the inclusivists wind up making an exclusivist claim, and we just need to be honest about that. We're all exclusive. We're all exclusive. Well, religious pluralism is born out of a desire to not be judgmental or offensive, which I appreciate a great deal, a desire to treat people with kindness and to be fair, which I'm, I'm applauding and saying yes in cultural pluralism, but in doing that, it may be the most offensive view of all because it says that, the very, that every exclusivist worldview is wrong and in doing so excludes all the exclusivists. The relativistic view of religion is just as exclusive as the claims of any traditional religion. Let's get back here to the text for a moment and look third at the fact that Jesus sends us to bear witness to the truth. There's an invitation, though subtle, there's an invitation in what Jesus says. Verse 36, my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is making an invitation to believe the truth as the truth incarnate stood before Pilate. The truth incarnate himself offered an invitation to believe the truth to Pilate. The man in the dock, as it were, or on the stand, invites his judge to be his follower, to align himself with those of the truth. We as followers of Jesus have the privilege of sharing the truth with people in all sorts of circumstances and whatever the cost. Jesus was willing to stand and to proclaim the truth unto death and we are called to take up our cross and follow him, that savior who died. Be willing to, whatever the cost, share Jesus in a winsome, loving, compelling way. Jesus didn't come only to bear witness to the truth for 30-something years during his life on earth, but he came to bear witness to the truth for the rest of time until he comes again. And how did he do that? 
Well, John 20 tells us that as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, even so I'm sending you. By Jesus coming as the sent one from God, bearing the truth, bearing witness to the truth, he then says, now you go. As I was sent, I am sending you to continue to carry on the bearing witness to the truth. The message we're called to share is described as the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, Ephesians 1.13 says. That's what we're called to carry on. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, namely that God created us, we've rejected him, and will face real judgment for real sin, but that Jesus Christ has made a way to be reconciled to God through his finished work on the cross. See, I really believe in Christianity not because it kind of just works in my life. I believe it works, and it does work because it's true. So yes, it brings joy. Yes, it brings peace. Yes, it brings freedom. Yes, there is grace. And the reason why it works is because it is the truth. Jesus bore witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. Jesus came because he himself is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. I think many of us, myself included, need a renewed sense of urgency about this. Truth isn't relative. If people have not encountered Jesus, they have not encountered the whole truth. They have not interacted with why Jesus came, why he died, why he rose, why he sends his church. And I feel like we've lost the urgency sometimes in in letting people know that this hell is real, that sin is real, that there's hope in Jesus, that salvation can be had, that this is the best news in the world and we ought to share it. But Nancy Piercy wrote a book and she talked in it about the fact that that society has created an upper and a lower story. And I find this really helpful. This This is a fabrication that we have built that isn't accurate. That in the upper story are our values. We can place our morals there. We can place our faith there, what we value, up in the upper story. This is wrong, but this is what what's happening. We place our faith in the upper story of values. But in the lower story, that's where facts, the hard sciences are, right? And so what happens is society will say, hey, I'm just dealing with the hard facts here, the the things that can be quantified down here in the lower part of the story. You can talk about Christianity all you want. And so that's where the language of, hey, that's great for you, it's not for me comes. Why? Well, that's in the upper story and you can take it or leave it. But the, the, the lower story is the stuff we need to believe. So it would be really weird of me to come to you and say, stop cheering for the Toronto Maple Leafs. You're such a bandwagoner. You need to long suffer with me and be a Canucks fan. It's, it's going to be really, really painful for a really, really long time. And you need to cheer for my team. And if I was to be really adamant about that, you'd be like, you're a jerk. Like, what do you do? I don't have to cheer for your team. Why? Because, well, that's just upper story stuff. That's just value stuff. You can take or leave that stuff. But, but that's where faith has been placed. But it shouldn't be. See, faith in Jesus is actually not just an upper story or a lower story thing. It's actually, I would argue, the best answer to all of the existential questions, all of the life questions, all of the, the heart yearnings that we have. It answers everything. There's a creation story there. There's, there's sin in the world. Well, what, there's wrong, there's suffering, there's evil. Well, how do we describe that? Well, Christian ha- Christianity has a narrative for all the things going wrong in the world, but it also has hope for how it can be made right. 
And there's opportunities. And there is also a conclusion to the story that we look for in every Disney movie where everything will be wonderful forever after. Why do we yearn for that? Well, because that's the story our hearts want so desperately. And Christianity isn't just in some lofty place where there's no facts. It's truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can believe this. You can know this. And it's true. And I think we've lost a lot of the urgency or we've even fallen for the upper lower story divide. And we actually think, oh, that's just my own privatized faith. I need to put that away. No. People are lost. Hell is real. Sin can be dealt with in Jesus Christ. And we get to proclaim the greatest name. We get to tell a better story. And I urge us to tell it. I urge us to tell it winsomely, compellingly. I urge myself, I urge all of us to to live in ways that that draw people and speak in ways that draw people to the better way. Many of us need a renewed sense of urgency about this. Jesus came for a reason, not because any path leads to God. It's because he is the path to God. And so he had to make that path with the cross. If truth isn't relative but is objective and not all ideas are equally valid, if Jesus is right, we shouldn't simply live a privatized faith that's good for me but not necessary for others. Jesus died to save humanity from the tyranny of sin, evil, and suffering. And he tells us, as he told Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So listen and live. Turn to Jesus. Believe and be saved. It actually, I'm convinced it actually requires more faith to believe the Western nicety religion of all paths lead to the same place well conflicting with each other. Can we talk about faith for a minute? That takes more. That is a worldview built on a contradicting system of thought and therefore it needs to be abandoned. If it contradicts itself, it has to be thrown away. Put your hope in Jesus, the word made flesh, the truth and the life, and share the hope that is in you with the world around you this week and in the weeks to come and the months and years to follow. Jesus was born to bear witness to the truth. Let's make our lives count for the great cause of the gospel as well. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and you sacrificially came. The reason you were born was to bear witness to the truth. The reason that you came and lived a spotless life was to bear witness to the truth. The reason why you died to pay the penalty for sins was to bear witness to the truth. The reason that you rose again and ascended on high was to bear witness to the truth. Oh, wait, may we believe the truth. Oh, God. Our community desperately needs Jesus to invade their hearts, their worlds, their lives. Would you use us, our feeble efforts, but our sincere efforts nonetheless, our prayerful efforts, our dependent on you efforts to reach the lost, that they might know your son. In Jesus' name, amen.